There's been times in my life, and I'm sure in your life, where uh, you may have blessing all around you, good things all around you happening, and yet you're having a difficulty uh, enjoying what's happening around you, that we, we can take for granted so many things in our life, the fact that we have clothing or housing or jobs or food and however that comes to us, whatever amount it's in, or, or children or parents or grandparents. Like We can take all these things and get, get focused on uh, what's going wrong. And so we have a ton of blessing around us, um, but can have a trouble um, enjoying it. And as we continue this series in the book of Genesis on the life of Joseph that we're calling Becoming a Blessing, um, we see that Joseph, we've learned that Joseph is the great-grandson of a man named Abraham. And Ab- God came to Abraham in a world that's full of the curse of sin uh, and all the devastating effects that happen because of sin and our rebellion against God. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you uh, so you can be a blessing to the rest of the world. And then that blessing gets transferred to his son Isaac, and then it gets transferred to his grandson Jacob, and then presumably it's going to get transferred to Jacob's sons, one of whom is... Joseph. And so Joseph is this guy who's part of this family that God wants to bless in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. God has plans for Joseph. God has plans for Joseph's family. And as we saw, we've seen so far in the series, and almost, you know, verse one almost, life doesn't go as Joseph planned it, as he wanted it, or as he expected it to go, because there's issues in his family. He has 11 brothers, and those 11 brothers are jealous of him, and then they actually hate him. And Joseph has these two dreams that he goes and tells to his family and says, hey, God gave me this dream that um, one day you guys are going to all be bawling down to me. And that didn't help relations at all, and they're already kind of jealous and mad at him and don't like him. And so they plan, like, we're going to get rid of Joseph. And like, we're going to kill him. And they're like, no, no, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery so his blood isn't on our hands. So they sell him to this caravan coming by, sell him to them, and that caravan goes down to Egypt and he gets sold into slavery in Egypt and gets sold to a man named Potiphar. And then while he's working with Potiphar, we see there's kind of this theme in Joseph's life where he uh, is successful. It seems like he kind of has this overseeing, uh, um, like helping his dad out, almost like his dad's right-hand man. Because his dad tells him, go and check on your brothers, and then he will bring reports back. And then when he's in Potiphar's house, he's sold as a slave there, but then soon Potiphar recognizes um, there's something about this kid. He's 17 years old when this happens. Maybe he's 18 by the time he gets to Egypt. But it's like, man, he, this, he knows what he's doing. And so he gets put in charge of things, gets put in charge of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's just doing his thing, and he's like, leaves it all in charge of Joseph. And eventually Potiphar's wife um, tries to uh, seduce him, and he refuses, and then she falsely accuses him. Like, hey, Joseph um, basically uh, shamed me, and what are you going to do about it? So Potiphar throws him in prison, in prison in his own house. But then while he's in prison, as we saw um, last week and the year, uh, a little bit in the week before, again, the, it's the, cat, the guy who's running the prison sees, Joe, there's something about this guy. And so he gets put in charge of the prison. He's attending to the prison. And he's doing work in the prison. And we keep getting told God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. And because God was with Joseph, he was successful. And he's experiencing um, blessing in his life, even as he's in these circumstances. Um, but over and over again, we're like, wait, okay, God is with him. It would have been nice if he didn't have to be successful in a prison. It's like God is with him, 
And yet, life isn't going as he wants it or plans it or expects it. God wants to bless him and bless his family and even has this dream of a specific way God wants to do it. And maybe at this point, Joseph is kind of like, maybe that was, you know, the hummus the night before or something that, that wasn't sitting well that I had that dream. Maybe that wasn't God. You know, maybe he's like, forget about that dream. Like, I'm, but he's like, God wants to bless me and he's with me and I'm being successful. And yet, at the same time, He's far away from his family. His brothers are hating him. They're jealous of him. He's in slavery. He's in prison and falsely accused. And as we saw last week, there's these two prisoners that Joseph had in prison with him. And they had dreams. Each of them had a dream. Joseph interpreted it. And he said to the the one prisoner, okay, when you get out and you get back and serving Pharaoh again, because that's who he was serving, he's like, remember me. You know, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm wrongly here. Please remember me. But the words we heard at the end of chapter 40... Uh, were this, yet the chief cupbearer, the guy who went back into Pharaoh's service, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So our story picks up there, Joseph, forgotten in prisons, sent off from his family, by his family, and now thinking, okay, this is my chance to get out, but he's forgotten in prison. We're going to go through this story in parts, and at the end we're going to have kind of two statements that I hope will be helpful as we look at this Um, Story And so the first part of the story in chapter 41, Joseph sitting forgotten in prison, we're told two years later, Pharaoh has two dreams, which is interesting because Joseph had two dreams. And then he had these two prisoners, each of them had dreams. And now Pharaoh has two dreams. And he has, you know, which is, Pharaoh wakes up disturbed, probably because he realizes it has, you know, some sort of like significance for how his country is going to go. But I mean, it's kind of like a nightmare. It's almost kind of good we're doing it close to Halloween because it's like these cows come and eat these other cows and it's like what? <laughs> cows eating cows and then grains of wheat eating other grains of wheat? It's kind of like a nightmare but Pharaoh says okay I have, my spirit is troubled and he calls all the wise men and magicians of the land he's like what does this dream mean? And none of them can tell him but then it's at that moment we see in verse 9 um, verse, verses 9 to uh, 11 where, or verses 9 through 13, actually, where uh, the chief cupbearer, he's like, oh, he remembers Joseph. Spent two years, I remember. And he tells Pharaoh, there is this guy in prison, and I'm seeing that none of these guys you've gathered together can tell, interpret your dream. There's this guy in prison who was able to tell me my dream and the chief baker's dream, and both of them came true. And so uh, Pharaoh's like, okay. Come, let's go get him, get him out of prison, bring him up here, and let's have him interpret this dream. And so uh, it's interesting what uh, Joseph says, even in front of Pharaoh, who doesn't share the same God as Joseph. Um, uh, in verse 16, Pharaoh's like, hey, I want you to interpret this dream. Uh, and he answers Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And I think favorable answer is probably thinking God is going to tell you what these are about and what's about to happen, um, not necessarily that you'll, you'll like the answer. And so uh, Pharaoh tells him the dream, gives him even a little more detail, as like, you know, the, the ugly cows ate up the fat cows, and you couldn't even tell. They still were thin and ugly. And, you know, it's, just, it's funny to imagine cows eating each other, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and so then Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh, in verse 25, they're one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And so then he goes on and interprets and says there's going to be these seven years where there's going to be really good growing in Egypt. 
And then there's going to be seven years after that where it's going to be a famine. And if you don't do anything about it, um, no one's even going to remember those good seven years because the seven years of famine are going to be so bad. There's not going to be any food. You would have had plenty of food in those seven years, and you're going to have just none in those other seven. And then he goes a little bit further, which is kind of gutsy because he doesn't just ferret and say, like, tell me what to do. He gives him the interpretation. And then he's like, let me tell you what to do now. This is what you should do. Appoint somebody to gather up one-fifth of all the food during these seven years, and then you're going to have it stored away. So during the seven years of famine, you're going to have food to distribute out. And then let's pick up then uh, how Pharaoh responds to this proposal in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this and whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. And so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh's like, that sounds. Joseph said, uh, in verse 34, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take, take a fifth, uh, one-fifth of the produce. In verse 33, he said, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. And Pharaoh says, is there anybody as wise and discerning as you? Like you've interpreted the chief baker and chief cupbearer's dreams. Now you've interpreted mine. You've given this plan that sounds really great. So he's like, I'm going to appoint you to do this thing. And we see this theme in Joseph's life. It seems like he has this... Uh, overseeing trustworthy job in his family and then it happens in uh, also when he's in Potiphar's house then it happens in prison it's like Joseph um, has this wisdom he has this experience in managing things and seeing what needs to be done and so God's prepared him for this moment of Pharaoh saying okay uh, I'm going to have you do this and then verse uh, well what's in what I found uh, stuck out to me was this uh, uh, back up in verse let's find it when Joseph is sitting in prison and the chief cupbearer tells him in verse 14 just in all this whole story it says then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit and then what does he do? He shaves himself, changes his clothes. I mean, in prison, I don't know if he was able to shave himself, but um, there's a difference in how Egyptians and Hebrews dressed and looked, and so they kind of make them ready to be in the royal court. It's like, okay, you can't, you got to have a smooth, clean face, and they um, get him shaved and put, it, put clothes on him, not these prison clothes that you have in prison, and they bring him before, uh, before, the, um, before Pharaoh. And his two dreams are what got him into this situation in Egypt. God gives him these dreams. He tells the dreams to his family. They're like, yeah, let's get rid of this guy. Um, and then his two dreams are what get him remembered. The two dreams of the prisoners are what get him remembered. 
um, by the chief cupbearer. And then these two dreams that Pharaoh has, he interprets them, are what gets him out of prison. And there's this connected connection between Jesus and Joseph and us. Because uh, Joseph was his father's beloved son. Remember, he was his favorite. And he's taken from his father's side down to Egypt into a pit. And then Pharaoh brings him up out of that pit, makes him worthy of his court, appoints him as ruler, and dresses him in royal clothes. And Joseph is given this new name. He's basically made into an Egyptian. He's given this new identity. And if you think about Jesus, Jesus was the beloved son of the father who left his father's side to enter the pit. Jesus became human. He entered this cursed world. By our disobedience to God, he entered this cursed world. Um, And then ultimately, he took upon himself the death, the penalty that we deserve for our rebellion against God. He became a human who suffered as we do, was tempted as we do, and died the penalty of sin that we deserve. But then God raises him up from the pit, seats him at his right hand, and once again to rule and to reign, once again having the glory he had from the beginning of creation. And if we were to turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we would read that we have the exact same story. When we trust in Jesus, we have that exact same story to happen to us. We were dead in our sin, it tells us. We were dead in our sin, in our trespasses, following the ways of this world, the ways of Satan. But God raised us up with Jesus, made us alive with him, and seated us with Jesus to reign with him. And he's given us good works for us to do. We were made worthy of Jesus' royal court. We were dressed in his robes of righteousness, and we were washed white as snow. And we're given a new name, a new identity. We're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're made God's sons and daughters inside and out. And so there's this connection between Joseph goes down into the pit and he gets exalted by Pharaoh and he gets made worthy of Pharaoh's royal courts. And we are in, Jesus came down into the pit and he took the penalty that we deserve upon himself and then he was raised up by the Father and seated at his right hand. Now we too, who are dead in our sins in this pit, are then because of God's great love and mercy as for us. We are brought out of it, raised to new life, um, seated in the heavenly places with Jesus, it tells us, that we have this royal status, that, and now we're actually given things to do. And just like Pharaoh, is like he takes him out of the pit, gives him stuff to do. He's like, I'm going to set you over things. I'm going to give you responsibility. I'm going to entrust this to you. And now we, God says, Ephesians 2.10, that there's good works that have been prepared for us to do in advance. But I think as we think about how we can be immensely blessed um, and yet not enjoying it, um, we see that, get a glimpse of that in the last verses of this chapter. So read with me verses 46 to 57. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So pause for a second. Remember he was 17 when he had the dreams back in chapter 37. So now he's 30, so it's been 13 years of being a slave and a prisoner. So continue verse 46 again. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, 
for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there is bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So things happened just as Joseph said. They, you, know, you could sit through those seven years of plenty and abundance and be thinking like, I don't know, Joseph, you know, the economy's looking pretty good, stock market's looking pretty good, like, I'm not seeing these seven years of famine coming, but Joseph does his thing, and sure enough, it comes, and now, well, Egypt, there's bread in all of Egypt, and the famine spreads so far, even up to Canaan, um, maybe down in south and north, up to Canaan, where Joseph's family is, um, and so people are coming from all over the place, and they're coming to Egypt, because they're like, man, Egypt has food, none of us, nobody else does, because God told Pharaoh through the dream, through Joseph, this is what's going to happen. Um, and so he sets it up for this, and this, all this is um, preparing for actually Joseph's family is going to have to come down because they're up in Canaan, there's a famine, and they're going to have to come down actually to Joseph and ask him for this food that he has stored up. And, but that's for a later, later time. But there's two things happening in this uh, chapter. Uh, there's the story of Joseph's rise from the pit to Pharaoh's court. Like, how did that happen? How did Joseph, why didn't he just die down there? You know, it's kind of like, why didn't we even follow him down there in this story? It's kind of like, and Joseph went off to slavery, and we have no idea what happened to him. Well, we follow him down, and it's like, oh, Joseph doesn't die a slave and a prisoner uh, in Egypt. He gets brought out of this pit, and he comes second command uh, in Pharaoh's kingdom, which is significant. But there's also the story of Joseph's pain from his past. And the names that Joseph gives his children, I think, show us some perspective on what, how he views what is happening to him. And last week, Brian talked to us about, okay, what's Joseph's interpretation of what's going on in his situation? We saw that Joseph is saying, like, I was taken. I was kidnapped out of my land. I'm not supposed to be here. And we see Joseph, what is, how much does he see of God's plan in this? And we saw God's plan. And then how do we interpret the things happening in our life? But we see... If you look at the two names, they're in verse 50 to 52. And just like a side note on trivia, uh, I don't know, actually it's Bible trivia, but if you think about the 12 tribes of Israel, and you think, oh, they're all Jewish, they're all Hebrew. What I find interesting about this is that uh, actually Joseph's two sons, which become two of the tribes, uh, names of the tribes of Israel, are half Egyptian because he marries an Egyptian. So anyway, there you go. If that ever comes up in Bible trivia... You can say that. Uh-uh. But So the two sons, 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship, all my father's house. And his, if you think about it, there was deep hardship that he experienced at the hands of his own brothers. They inflicted terrible pain on him. It's, it, it's nothing short of trauma. I mean, your own brothers um, conspiring first to kill you. I mean, remember they threw him in a pit, and they're like, "Well, let's we're going to get kill him." Uh, and but then they're like, "You know what? Let's let's sell him into slavery instead." That's kind of the, you know that's the more noble road. Uh, so they sell him into slavery, 
And so now he's been a, sent off from his family to never, he, I mean, you, you would imagine, he would assume, I'm never going to see my family again. And why would I want to? Like, they sent me down here. And so he's a slave. Uh, and then he's in prison. And it's like he just keeps going down and down and down, never to think his family again. I mean, can you imagine your brothers turning on you, selling you to human traffickers, and then faking your death to your father so he wouldn't come looking for you? Joseph has lived with a slave and a prisoner for 13 years, assuming he's never going to see his father or family ever again. So he names his first son Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word for making to forget. You know, it's kind of like, I've had these 13 years of terribleness, and who knows, maybe there's years of turmoil before that when he was still with his family and his brothers doing whatever to him. But he's like, now I've had this kid. This is kind of like setting a new stage for me. Like, I'm no longer a prisoner. Like, I've been liberated from being a slave and a prisoner. And now look at all the stuff before me. And he's like, okay, new stage in my life. And I've had a son now. And this is going to make me forget what happened before. And Joseph, he gives credit to God. He's like, God has done this. God has brought circumstances to my life. So now I can forget what happened before, uh, which is good. But has Joseph really forgotten? And can he really forget? I mean, every time he says this kid's name, oh yeah, he's supposed to make me forget that horrible thing that happened. Hey, forget, forget, come for dinner. You know, it's like, what was I supposed to forget? Oh yeah, all that horrible stuff that happened to me before. I think he wants to forget. He's out of slavery. He's out of prison. His physical circumstances have changed. But the terrible, situ- this terrible situation his brothers put him in has changed. But there's still the pain and the reality that they did it in the first place. And he's trying to forget, trying to move on. It was interesting as I was reading um, some of the uh, people who have written about this passage. It was kind of split. I'm like, oh, now, now Joseph is setting out and he's forgotten all the pain of the past. And then some were like, and the way he names his kid makes it look like he did. You know, it was like this torn, like, did he, is he forgetting? Is he not forgetting? And I think, how can you forget? And, uh, and there's this pain, this reality. He's now trying to move on with his life without his father, without his family, he's starting this new family. I mean, he's been familyless, and he's like, okay, now I have a child to call my own. The physical pain has been relieved, but the emotional wounds are still there. And then his second son's name, Ephraim, sounds like the word for making fruitful. And Joseph again gives credit to God. He says, the name of my second, verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. His explanation seems to be saying, okay, I got sent down here to Egypt. This has been the place of my affliction. I've been a slave. I've been a prisoner. But look, despite all that, God has made me fruitful. He's given me a child. He's raised me out of this pit. And now I actually get like this big responsibility. Like, look, you know, it's almost like, if only they could see me now, <laughs> kind of thing. Like, if only, look, you guys tried to keep me down. But look, now I'm second in command in Egypt. And I have a family of my own. And his brothers sent him down there. But despite everyone's best efforts, God has now made him fruitful, he says. He's still in the land of his affliction, cast away in his family. But for now, he is fruitful in it. He's been exalted, honored, given a wife and children. And the truth is that we can see here, Joseph is not off in saying, like, you made me fruitful in my land of affliction. Um, The truth is that we can be fruitful in the land of our affliction. And maybe right now you feel like, Man, I'm in a time of difficulty and affliction. Of seems like your boss or family members or neighbors or kids or whoever it is um, is just. I just feel afflicted. I feel 
uh, pushed down. I feel like I'm getting pushed down into this pit. And we can see this good news that God can make us fruitful in the land of our affliction. Even though maybe there's suffering all around us in our life and we feel like nothing's going as we wanted, expected, or planned, God can make us fruitful in that. And we saw, uh, he talked about the seven years of fan, or seven years of plenty, and it's like us enjoying our blessings. Um, that sometimes we can, he says, if once those seven years of famine come, everyone, you're going to completely forget those seven years of plenty. And maybe it's been like, you know, I had seven good years or one good year, or however many good years in this situation or this in, or this in relationship. But then this thing happened this week, and I've hit famine, and just makes us forget about all the good things. We don't enjoy it. And we don't saying thank you, God, for those things anymore. And the truth is that Joseph sees that God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. But if we took that one step further, is that even though God may take us from the pit, our past can still keep us in it. Because Joseph, it's like he's been liberated from the physical things that his brothers did to him. But it's like, where is, he, where is his mind still at? It's like, I mean, his career is at an all-time high, right? He's like at the top of his game. Like he's almost the, he's like the, I don't know what he'd be, the CFO or something. And uh, Pharaoh's the CEO. It's like, man, I'm right-hand man. Like everything's going as I want. But like where is his mind at? Where is his heart at? It's like, I just want to forget that hardship from back there. It was 13 years ago. And that's still where he's at, like replaying that in his mind. Um, but, and so he can, it seems like he's moving on a bit. And it's like, oh, this is great, God, you bless me. But still, it's like, even though God has taken him from the pit, his past can keep us in it. Our past can keep us in it. We can still sit and feel like, you know, it's just, you know, that all that was bad, and so I can't even enjoy what I have now. There's three, so that's the one statement that's important to take from this. Uh, even though God may take you from the pit, your past may keep you in it. We'll go into that a little deeper in a bit. There's three things to notice uh, for Joseph's life. God didn't forget Joseph. Well, the cupbearer forgot him. Uh, but in God's plan, it uh, seems like it's part of God's plan. Like, well, jo- Pharaoh wasn't going to have those dreams for another two years. And so what's the chief cupbearer going to do? It's like, okay, two years later, now he remembers. But God didn't forget Joseph. Secondly, God blesses Egypt when Joseph reflects his character. God didn't forget Joseph. And God blesses Egypt when Joseph reflects his character. Like three or four times, several times we're told Joseph is wise and discerning. Um, just like God is wise and discerning. And God is working out this huge plan we're going to see from chapter 37 to chapter 50. God is wise and discerning to work out the salvation of his people, of Joseph's family, of Joseph, of us. And Joseph, people are seeing, Joseph is wise and discerning. And so he has this opportunity to bless Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. And something for us to, to think about, well, I'll circle back to that in a second. Thirdly, God made Joseph fruitful in the land of his affliction. So God didn't forget Joseph. God blesses Egypt when Joseph reflects his character. And God made Joseph fruitful in the land of his affliction. And so for us, if you're going through some sort of hardship, some sort of suffering, some sort of affliction, um, all of us have a past that affects how we live today. Um, Whether your family was just the best family that they could possibly be, they were still not a perfect family. And whether you had awesome friends, they still weren't perfect friends. Um, So we all have things from our past, pain from our past that affects us 
today. And as we think about this a situation that's maybe happening right now or something from long ago that's just still anchoring you down, God hasn't forgotten you. And second, uh, God blesses others when you reflect his character. Uh, that whatever situation you're in, if it's a hard family situation, hard work situation, um, hard neighborhood situation, hard church situation, God blesses others when you reflect his character. And what's interesting about uh, for Joseph, I mean, Pharaoh and Egypt, they don't believe in Joseph's God. Um, and sometimes we can maybe think like, well, I'm only going to bless people. I'm only going to help people, love people, give things to people who deserve it. It's like, well, if I give them this, what are they going to do with it? I mean, Pharaoh helps Egypt stay alive. And later on, 400 years later, they enslave Joseph's family. It's like, you know, so Joseph, God knows all this, but in God's generosity and his grace and providence, Joseph um, is blesses Pharaoh. And he doesn't say, like, Pharaoh, you don't even believe in the God who can help you out here, so forget it. I'm not going to interpret your dream. He's like, he's just like, no, God's going to do this. And he gives Pharaoh a plan, and then he executes the plan. And he's reflecting God's generous character, his wise, discerning character. And so whatever situation you find yourself in in all of life, God blesses others through you when you reflect his character. And thirdly, God can make you fruitful in your affliction. And even more than that, not just like, okay, I've had this affliction, and now God's changed, reversed it. Now Pharaoh, he's out of the, Joseph's out of the pit, and he has a family and stuff. Um, by the end of this book, Joseph's going to see that it's not just that God, I had 13 years of affliction, ooh, and then God reversed it, and I'm out of affliction. By the end of this book, Joseph sees those 13 years of affliction were intended by evil, were intended for evil by my brothers. But God intended them for good. We see it in chapter 50, uh, verse 20. Uh, by the end of the book, Joseph isn't going to see, okay, God, you reversed my affliction. He's going to see, you actually use my affliction for good. God can use your affliction for good. But we can so often feel like, I'm in this affliction, I'm in this suffering, and God's forgotten me. Um, and if God loved me, if God was with me, if God really wanted to bless me, if God was really taking care of me, then... You know, X, Y, and Z wouldn't have happened. Things would have gone as I wanted, as I expected, as I planned. If God was really in my life, he was really for me and not against me, and was out for my good and wanted the best for me, then these things would not have happened. And so we can grumble and complain in our affliction, or we can just kind of feel get stuck. It's just kind of like overwhelming. Like, all these things happen to me, and I'm just kind of stuck in feeling, in the pit of feeling those bad things that happened. And we can blame people the people of our past, for what's wrong with us today. Like, well, if my parents or whoever it was would have done so-and-so or my teacher would have done so-and-so, then, you know, things would not be as they were um, today. And our past deeply affects how we live today. Today, And if you deny that, that just means it's affecting you more because you're not aware that it's affecting you. It's whatever, everything that's happened in our past, yesterday, past 20 years, 50 years, past week, is, makes us into who we are today. Um, God's in the process of um, changing us and healing us and bringing us out of that. Um, and it's fully true uh, that God has already made us new. God has already uh, made us his children. Um, but yet there's still kind of this reparenting that needs to happen in us from whatever our past has done to us. And our past affects what bothers us. It past affects how we interpret other people's accent, actions. Our past affects what we're most afraid of. Our past affects what we want most from people. Our past affects uh, our relationships. And there's this uh, 
Um, so something in my and Kay's relationship that we realize is really a me thing and my past, um, which doesn't affect her at all. Um, we went, were doing some, uh, we were kind of feeling like we were in this rut, and we so we're like, hey, we're gonna. There's when I was in seminary, there's like uh, reduced price counseling on campus, and so we're like, let's go and get some help from a counselor to like help us through some of this ruts we're in. And they taught us this tool called the dialogue wheel. I won't go through the whole thing, but there's these. Uh, two parts to it that were really revealing. It's like, okay, what's the fact of what happened? And so often when we say, here's what happened, uh, you don't care about me. It's like, well, that's, is that a fact? How can I actually say what's going on inside of the other person? The fact is, um, X happened. And we could both agree on that fact. And then you'd say, this is how I felt about that. And here's the story I told about it. Here's my interpretation. And there was this thing that happened over and over in our relationship, and which was, um, I was always really hurt. Um, when we were together and Katie would be on her cell phone. It's like, for her, it wasn't really bothersome to her that I would be on my phone. If, you know, it's like, hey, we're hanging out and I'm just, you know, looking at my phone, checking something. Like, that wouldn't really bother her, but it was really, like, triggering to me. And so we were going through this counseling session. It's like, here's the fact of what happens. I feel sad. Um, what's the story I tell? Well, the story I tell about you is that you don't care about me. Like, you know, this isn't a, I'm not a priority to you. But then the part that shows how the past affects is bringing that in. It's like, what does this remind you of? And it was like, well, this reminds me of this thing that happened in my family. And it's like, that's why that thing is so upsetting to me. Like, for Katie, it was like, well, that I wasn't hurt by people using screens or phones or whatever in my family. And so, like, for me to be on my phone was kind of like, she's like, that, that's fine. Like, there's times where she's like, well, I want you to be, let's be focused on each other now. But for most of most of it is like, that doesn't really affect her. But for me, it was like my past of a hurt that I got um, growing up was affecting how I was seeing her actions, even though it's like, no, of course I care about you. Of course you're the priority. Like, why would that be the case? Just I'm looking at my phone. It's like, well, you know, this thing happened in my past that brought that up. And for all of us, you know, that just brings an awareness. Like, okay, that's what's going on there. And we all have things like that in our past that are affecting how we grow up or how we're relating to people now, that pain. And then... What we can do that after that is, okay, how does the gospel apply into that? It's like there's the awareness, but it's only half the battle. It's like, no, how does Jesus, how does God speak good news into that? And how can I believe the best in Katie? And how can I be like, well, this is what um, Jesus says um, into that. And this is why when we do trainings on like telling our testimony or telling our story of how did you come to know Jesus, we start with, your family growing up, well, my family growing up was like this, and then bringing it into the present, and now, like, the ways that we're growing now are largely growing out of the pains and the ways that we were uh, programmed from our growing up years before we came to know Jesus, and we come to know Jesus, and, and then we're already um, justified and totally righteous, and we're called holy, and we're called all these things, but we're still in the process of becoming holy, of becoming righteous, of becoming loving and patient and kind people. And as we're doing that, it's an undoing of all that programming that we got. And so that's why when we do trainings, I'm like, this is how we tell our story, uh, how we tell our story to other people. It's like, okay, start from the beginning. And like, this is what things were like growing up in my family. And this is what I believed about myself. This is what I believed about God. And oh, that's it, that connected because this is what my family was like. And then we show like, and now I trust in Jesus. And now I'm learning like, well, God, people care about me. Um, even though they do X, Y, and Z, or God cares about me, even if I feel like I'm forgotten, or you know, these these ways that we um, then begin changing that. And the truth is, 
uh, that we can be fruitful in the land of our affliction. But what's also true is that God can use our affliction to grow fruit in us as well. God is not only the... So here's the second statement that's important for this chapter, that God is not only the reliever of affliction, but the redeemer of affliction. God is not only the reliever of affliction, but the redeemer of affliction. And Joseph is seeing... God has relieved my affliction. And by the end of this book, he's going to see, you know what, God redeems affliction and he uses it for good. It's intended for evil, but he uses it for good in our lives. And if you think about the moment that you would think could not possibly be used for God's purposes, it's when Jesus is on the cross, bloody, beaten, spit on, uh, and naked and ashamed and dying. The Son of God came to earth to change something, to bring God's kingdom. And he died. Okay, mission failed, right? <laughs> but in, at the cross is the ultimate time when what humanity intended for evil, God then intended for good. That God doesn't just relieve Jesus of that affliction by resurrecting him and seeing him as right hand, but he redeems that. That he now uses that affliction, that suffering Jesus went to, to bring salvation to all of us, to pay for the forgiveness that we all need. And it doesn't mean that our affliction doesn't hurt us. And when I was in a grief counseling course uh, in seminary, uh, this is what the professor defined. This is what grief counseling is about, she said, of what we're trying to do in our own lives and in other people's lives. She said this, Our task is to learn how to carry the joy and the sorrow we experience in ways that allow us to embrace life and all God gives to us while acknowledging the losses and embracing the pain we experience. And us believing that God can relieve my affliction, you know, we might say like, you know, one day, it might not be until you enter, see him face to face that you're relieved of whatever affliction it is. Um, but we also need to, believing that God can redeem the affliction doesn't mean we say, oh, just don't worry about it. Like, stop crying over that. Stop grieving over that. Stop being in pain over that. Um, but it's saying like, God, this isn't how the world's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this way. Brothers aren't supposed to sell their brother into slavery. You're not supposed to be falsely accused and put in prison. You're not supposed to be forgotten in prison when, some, when you help somebody out and he just forgets you when he gets back in his spot. Life isn't supposed to be us experiencing pain from one another or experiencing the curse of rebellion and sin in our lives. It's not how God intended it, but what we intended for evil, God can use, uh, will use, um, for good and so it's saying like I have the joy of my salvation I have the joy of God in my life and all that he is and I have the joy of knowing that he doesn't waste any of it all, any of the pain and holding on to one day we might not even ever see what came out of the pain we experienced but we can know God's what we see in Romans 8.28 God works together all things for the good of those who love him that we can say even in this whatever it is we're going through we can take joy and say God I know I can't see it, um, but you see it. And you know what you're doing, and you're going to work this out to a good end. So as we think about what to do in our suffering, there's three things. Brian gave us one of them last week. So we obey God in our suffering, we trust God in our suffering, and we rejoice in our suffering. So we obey God in our suffering. Brian said last week, even when life doesn't make sense, obey God. And we trust God in our suffering. So it's not just saying, 
okay, God, well, you know, this is all horrible, but I guess I've got to do what you want me to do. It's like, well, we trust God. I mean, we go to some of these four Gs where we say, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. I feel it's completely out of control of what's happening right now, but God, you're great, you're in control. And God is good, so I don't have to look for satisfaction in how my plan would be for my life. We say, God, you're in control, and you are good, and so I trust that this thing you're doing, it hurts. I don't like it, um, but I trust that you are working out for my good or other people's good um, in this world. And lastly, which is perhaps the hardest, but if we can trust God in our suffering, we can also rejoice in our suffering, which is difficult because we'd rather uh, perhaps complain about it. Like I said, it's okay to cry. It's okay to complain to God. It's much better to complain to God than to complain about God to other people. Uh, But we read in James 1 to 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if we believe that God is in control and that he is good, that means we can say, I'm going to rejoice in this because I know you're bringing good out of it. And even as we have tears streaming down our face of saying, like, you know, I don't like this. This is painful. Um, these things that happened in my past, they're painful. Um, but God can redeem it. We can say with tears streaming down our face, um, like, I'm rejoicing in this because I know that evil does not have the final say on whatever was done to me. And if you think about us as a family, family of God, um, as we close, <clears throat> we're being, each of us, you know, when a marriage happens, two people come together, with different families of origin, families that have affected them and hurt them in different ways. And so Katie and I come together, and it's like, okay, you do things that way, you do things that way. Oh, you were hurt by this in the past, or this happened with you, and now it's like all that's thrown together. And then you have a church uh, that, okay, now we got however many people of all these different pasts, pains from our past and wounds from our past, that some of them are still raw, some of them are still scars, and we come together, and it's like we put them all together, and we're all just kind of like, banging up against each other. Um, but as, so as we do that, we're, we're told in the Bible to bear with one another, um, to give grace and patience to one another. And we're all being reparented by the best father of all. We're being shown like, no, this is what I'm, I'm truly like. What God's saying, this is what I'm truly like. And this is how I'm showing this to you. And this is how I want, I want to show you this to others. And I was challenged at a conference this week. It was talking about um, the, uh, the speaker said, I can't remember the exact quote, I didn't write it down, but in, in my notes, but he said, um, embracing um, conflict or embracing difficulties in relationships uh, as an opportunity for formation. God is trying to form us through that. And so when God puts us all together as a family, one of the ways the Bible is very interesting, you see like in Philippians 2 where it says, how do we shine as lights in a dark world of people that don't know how to do relationships? It says, oh, don't, grumble and complain against one another, don't fight against one another, but have harmony and peace and unity. And that the work of us fighting to love one another and do conflict well and talk to each other when we don't like something somebody else does, instead of stuffing it down and letting bitterness and resentment come up or talking to other people about it and gossiping. The reason the Bible talks about all those things is like gossiping, that seems a little, you know, low on the totem pole compared to murder. And but you see this big focus like don't gossip, don't slander one another, don't Grumble and complain about one another. Why? Because as we show new, a new humanity, new relationships, 
doing it in a new way. We say, like, God is using this pain that I'm experiencing right now for good. And when I step into the pain of talking with somebody about something that's happened, um, God uses that for good, um, even though perhaps it was intended for evil or things in my past were intended for evil. Um, so let's join me in prayer as we pray to our the best Father of all. Father, thank you that whatever evil was done to us in our past, that you can redeem it and use it for good, and that one day we will be completely relieved of all evil in the new creation, new heaven, new earth. And when we see Jesus, he will be the judge to dispose of all evil. And would you let us be a family that looks to you as our good Father, uh, whose ways we sometimes don't understand, but we know you are perfect, that you are good, that you do all things um, for our good and for our best. So in his name we pray. Amen.